When followers of Jesus Christ truly love each other, respect each other, and work together in humility and the common cause of the gospel, when we are not fighting, bickering, arguing, and in open conflict with one another, then a lost world has a chance to see that Jesus truly is both Messiah and the Prince of Peace. What would it be like to listen into the actual prayer of Jesus as he prayed to the Father? Jesus prayed for himself, for his disciples, and even for us. Jesus showed his affection through his prayers. And how can we be praying concerning the current events, especially in light of events like the Hamas attacks and the Israeli response? Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. And today, we want to present Joel taking us through John chapter 13 and 17, detailing how Jesus prayed for himself, his disciples, and us, showing his love and his affection through prayer. Here's Joel. What a blessing this summit has already been to Lynn and to me, hopefully to you as well. Last night, of course, Anne walked us through the Daniel prayer. This morning, Ronnie taught us through the Apostles' Prayer in Acts chapter 4. And, and now we come to the high priestly prayer of Jesus. One of the most remarkable prayers ever recorded in the scriptures. And one that I believe holds lessons that are vital for the church at this critical hour. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 17? John chapter 17. And as you do, let me set the context. The Messiah has celebrated Passover with the Twelve. What an intimate gathering together around a special meal with dear, dear friends. And what a privilege that we're invited into the room where it happened. Now, we typically think of the prayer that's recorded in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11 as the Lord's Prayer, right? We prayed it last night as we opened, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what we usually think of as the Lord's Prayer. And that certainly was a beautiful and powerful prayer. And yet, when we think about it, That's not really the Lord's prayer, right? Because Jesus didn't have to ask his father to be forgiven of his sins. So that's not really Jesus' prayer of his own, right? The scriptures make it clear that Jesus was without sin. That prayer is Jesus' recommendation. It really maybe, you know, and John MacArthur makes this point. It really maybe is better known as the apostles' prayer or the disciples' prayer. Because John 17 really in so many ways, really is the Lord's Prayer. It's in John 17 where the curtain sort of goes up or gets pulled back, and we get to see into the prayer life between the Son and the Father. And and what a privilege. This is how Jesus speaks to his Father. And when you think about it, it's very rare in the Gospels that we get to see that. We know that Jesus was a man of prayer. We know that he got up early in the morning before the sun rose, to pray. We know that he prayed throughout the day. 
We know that he spent a lot of time in prayer. That's why the disciples said, well, maybe that is something you should teach us. That seems to be important to you. But we very rarely get more than a glimpse, a line, a couple of lines of the content of that prayer. But here in John chapter 17, we see the longest prayer of Jesus ever recorded. And there's so much for us to learn. Now, the prayer is divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 5... Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his friends, for the, for the 12. Well, for the 11, uh, Jesus was gone at this point. In the last section, the third section, uh, verses 20 through 26, Jesus actually prays for us. Now, I'm going to spend the most amount of time on this last section because that's where the Spirit's been drawing me and, and, and prompting me uh, as I've been working on this message and studying it for, for several months. But, but I want to start at the beginning. Section 1, John 17, 1 through 5, the hour has come. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes up to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh... That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the world was. The Passover Seder is over now. Jesus has sent Judas Iscariot away to be indwelt by Satan. Christ has celebrated the communion with the eleven. He has shared with them matters that were dear to his heart. And now Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. What hour? (laughs) Hasn't he been saying through the entire ministry, the hour has not yet come? John 2, 4, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. John 7, 6, Jesus said, my time is not yet here. John 8, 20, the apostle John writes, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And yet now the hour has come. For the Son of Man to become the suffering servant foretold in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. After 33 years on the earth, some three years in public ministry, the time has arrived for the Messiah to pay the penalty for every sin we have ever committed. And then to rise from the dead according to the scriptures. At this point, Jesus has accomplished all the work that the Father had given him to do. He had loved the lost. He had taught the word. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. He had preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. He had made disciples. He had resisted all sin, and he had fulfilled messianic prophecy. And having kept his part of the bargain, as it were, Jesus now asked the Father to keep his to bring home his beloved son and to restore to him all the rightful glory with which Jesus set aside when he left heaven, when he left 
uh, his role at the right hand of the father and came to be born as a baby boy in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. And the Bible makes it clear that the father not only heard these prayers, but he answered them. Which brings us to section two, John 17, verses six through 19. The men whom you gave me. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. And I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name with the name which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. What is so beautiful in this passage is the affection Jesus has for his friends. Here in section 2, Jesus prays for the 11 men who lived with him, who walked with him, who ate with him, who sang with him, who laughed with him, whom he gave assignments and they did them, some well and some not so well. He was a good teacher. He taught them, and then he also gave them pop quizzes. They often fail those pop quizzes, but that gave them a chance to identify what they had absorbed and what they still needed to learn. But he wasn't just a good teacher. He was a good shepherd, and he's showing us that. He's showing them that as he prays to his father. He has made the name and the nature of God known to them. And now he asks the father to protect them to guard them spiritually and physically, though he knows that each one of them will go to their deaths for him. He asks the Lord to guard, the Father to guard each one of them, except for the son of perdition, for Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him and was condemned to hell and eternal damnation. What's more, Christ asks the Father to give the 11 his deep, deep joy. His joy as they walk with him, as they fulfill the mission that he gave them to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, not just Israel. 
And once again, the father not only hears these prayers, but he answers them as well. Which brings us to section three. And this is really where I want to spend the most amount of time. John 17, verses 20 through 26. For those who believe in me through their word. Jesus prays, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's not just praying for his friends. But also for those who believe in me through their word. That they all may be as one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also might be in us, may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory with which you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one. Just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory with which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here in section three of this high priestly prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus turns his attention to us, to you, to me, to his church, to his beloved bride. I do not ask on behalf of these apostles alone, Jesus says in verse 20, but for those also who have believed in me through their word. And what is it that our Savior wants for us? What is it that he's praying for us? Well, it's quite a list, actually. He, he wants us to truly believe and understand that the Father sent him and that he's the very Messiah that was foretold by the ancient prophets. He wants us to know the name and the very nature of God. He wants us to be in him. He wants him to be in us. He wants us to see and experience the glory of the Father. He wants us to truly know and experience the love of God. He wants us to be one with him and one with each other. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the, the riches of this prayer can and should be studied and mined and meditated upon forever. There is really so much here. And, and yet one theme the Spirit keeps drawing me back to again and again. And that's the theme of unity. Of the many vital matters upon our Savior's heart in his final prayer on his final night with these men that he loved so much, one of the most important matters that he prays about is unity. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name with which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verses 20 and 21, I do not ask for these uh, on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory with which you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. 
verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The purpose of unity. Why? Why does Jesus spend so much time? He could talk about anything that night. Anything that he wanted to talk about with his father, he could have talked about. Why does he come back to the theme of unity at all and then again and again? Five out of 26 verses, almost 20% of that prayer, the longest ever recorded of Jesus' prayers, Christ is asking for the unity of the church. Why? And why not ask once and move on? Did he, did he think the Father did not hear him? Of course not. He's the one that wrote Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. What then? Upon reflection, I think two answers emerge. First, the unity of the church is such a big deal to Jesus that he couldn't simply mention it. He wanted to talk about it with his father at length. The spirit within him so longed to see the love and the unity that that would define the church that Jesus literally could not help himself but share this heart cry with his father. It was a passion welling deep up from within him, within his soul, and it had to be expressed. Second, the unity of the church is such a big deal to Jesus that he absolutely had to share it with the church. Unlike most of his prayers, which were private and went unrecorded, as we've just said, Jesus knew full well that this one would be recorded. In its entirety. And he knew that it would be studied by believers for the next 2,000 years. Indeed, he wanted it to be. And by repeating the theme multiple times from multiple angles, Jesus knew this theme of unity would draw the attention of believers and impress upon them, on us, we hope, its importance. Still, we need to press deeper. Clearly, the topic was important to Jesus, but why exactly does he long for his followers, followers not just to walk in unity, but to be perfected? In unity. The good news is we don't have to guess at the answer because Jesus tells exactly, he tells us exactly why. And he uses three phrases to do it. One, that the world may know. Two, that the world may believe. And three, that they may have my joy made full. There is no question that God is pleased with believers who are loving and kind and walking in humility and harmony. Likewise, he's displeased when we're consumed with disunity, dissension, and open conflict. That, I think, is self-evident. But the text indicates that there's much more to it than this. First, Jesus is telling us that the love and unity of the body of, of Christ, of the church, is profoundly evangelistic. In verse 21, the Lord tells the Father, he wants believers to be unified so that the world may believe that you sent me. In verse 23, he tells the Father, he wants believers to be unified so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them and the disciples even as you have loved me. This is what he's saying. Jesus is building on a point that he made earlier in the evening, earlier in the Last Supper. John chapter 13 Verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, 
this love for our, each other. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When followers of Jesus Christ truly love each other, respect each other, and work together in humility and the common cause of the gospel, when we are not fighting, bickering, arguing, and in open conflict with one another, then a lost world has a chance to see that Jesus truly is both Messiah and the Prince of Peace. That is, when we mere mortals are loving and kind and respectful of one another within the church, even when we disagree, the world can see that Jesus Christ has the power to radically transform the souls of sinners. Indeed, that he is the only one who can. In a lost and broken and divided world, John 13 love and John 17 unity is a tremendously winsome testimony and an incredibly effective tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel. Conversely, when believers are not loving towards one another, when we're bitter and divisive and quarreling and self-consumed, our capacity to convince a lost world that we know and and are indwelt by the Prince of Peace, well, that's severely hindered. So that's one of the purposes of unity. It's profoundly evangelistic. But there's a second purpose. Jesus wants us to experience deep, deep joy. The Bible is clear. When we abide in Christ, when we truly walk with him and live to please him in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will bear much fruit. Love, joy, peace. Amen. Now, when we love God and love others, we will experience Christ's joy, the joy we were made for, joy divine and beyond description. Yet, when we are carnal, when we are unkind, when we are snarky, when we are ungracious, when we are divisive, either with our mouth or perhaps on social media, we not only displease the Father, but we rob ourselves of the very joy that Christ longs to give us. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, said Jesus, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 16, 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John 17, 13, but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, my disciples, may have my joy made full in themselves. Now, the power of unity is that, dear brothers and sisters, there's something beautiful, there's something powerful about biblical unity. Remember the words of the psalmist, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters, to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down on the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing of life forever. Psalm 133. That's what unity does. That's what it is. It's good. It's pleasant. It's precious. And it brings the blessing of full and abundant life. 
Remember, too, the words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on The Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Our verse of the day today is found in John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our prayer requests today are to number one, pray for peace and strength for believers in the epicenter during these times of unprecedented terrorist attacks in Israel. And second, to pray for the comfort and protection of all who are suffering in the epicenter during this time. May God's love and compassion be shown to all those who need it. Indeed, Paul goes on to write in Ephesians. And he just, this, is, this theme dominates the life of Paul. Ephesians chapter 4. And he, the Father, gave some to be apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. Why? For what? For their work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. On the one hand, this is interesting as you look through these passages, on the one hand, God has already granted us unity in Christ. That's what Paul says. Positionally, we are one in Christ. We are unified positionally. 
our job then is not to create unity, but Paul says to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's a truth. But Paul shares another truth. He says, on the other hand, in our day-to-day reality, we are still very much divided and we need to become unified. And that's what the leaders of the church and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for. To help us grow into maturity until we attain the unity of the faith, until we are perfected in unity. And this is a theme Paul returns to time and time and time again. Why? Because it's so close to Christ's heart. Paul's not making this stuff up on his own. He's not spitballing. He's not a fiction writer. God bless them. Uh, he, he's listening to the Spirit. And the Spirit's saying, hey, write about unity. Hey, write about it again. Hey, talk about, say this, right? Because that's what's on his heart. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul famously teaches us that Christ himself is our peace, who made the two, both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity between these groups so that in himself and only in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross. When we are divided, we are not demonstrating to the world, much less to each other, the one new man. But I hope you're beginning to get a feeling for what it looks like when you can come to a conference in Israel and you open with Palestinian worship. And then you hear Anne, and then you hear an Israeli, and then you hear an Arab. I mean, this is what God is doing. He's knit. This is not a normal conference. It's wonderful. It's sweet. And, and, and I'm not being critical, but often we have Israeli conferences or we have Arab conferences and never the two shall meet sometimes. So this is an issue. It's a problem. There's a place for that, but I love this. I was telling some of the speakers in the back, I need to come up with a conference where I just invite the people that I so love and want to hear from and then just sit out there and not say anything. I am just loving hearing them lead us in worship and in prayer and preaching and teaching the word and sharing what God is doing. Now there are now some thoughts for the church in the epicenter as we, as we meditate on the high priestly prayer and this theme of unity that's so central to Christ's heart. We have to ask ourselves, first of all, how are we doing where we live? How are you doing? Are you experiencing the perfect bond of unity with believers back home? How are we doing here in the epicenter? Well, ours, I must admit, is a mixed picture in this neck of the woods. As the founder and the chairman of the Joshua Fund, I have great joy in spending time with Jewish and Arab pastors and ministry leaders here in the land and and in the region. I've had the joy of traveling to Egypt and to Jordan and to Iraq to spend time with dozens and dozens of um, of Arab pastors and ministry leaders, evangelical leaders, and listening to their hearts and and finding out how I can pray for them, how the church can pray for them. What a sweet time to do this. And our Joshua Fund staff, uh, especially the gifted pastors who are on our team, specially trained for this type of work, that they spend even more time with pastors and ministry leaders on both sides than I 
uh, do. And I love that. Every year we host conferences and, and retreats for hundreds of pastors and, and, and ministry leaders in this region, Jewish and Arab and other ethnicities as well. We get to sit and to listen to them and pray with them. And I joke that the, the biggest line item in the Joshua Fund budget is, is coffee and baklava. Look, and we see signs of hope. We really do. It's important to say this. God is making the unity of his church in the epicenter a major priority. I think he's raising this topic more and more as he gets ready for Jesus to come back. He's healing old wounds. He's building bridges of friendship and dialogue and prayer. And I'm encouraged by this. We all are on our team. But... I believe it's fair to say that we as believers in this region have a a good deal of work to do before Jesus could say of us that we've been perfected in our unity. And so in our final moments in this session, I'd like to address three specific questions, even as I ask you to be praying for unity among the believers in this part of the world and, and, and pray for that like you've never prayed before. Question number one. What does the Lord mean that we will be one with him? We should start there. Well, obviously this refers first and foremost to our salvation. When we are born again, the spirit of God begins to reside in us. We are no longer outside the family of God. We are now inside his family. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And yet it's more than just joining God's family and and more than salvation alone. The Lord wants to change us from the selfish, sinful, snarky people that we are. Am I the only one? (laughs) Perhaps. Into loving, kind, gentle people through the power of his Holy Spirit. Right? That's what he wants to do. Bring us into his family to be one and then to make us nicer, sweeter, Right? Kinder and gentler, the way it used to be said. Not gonna do it. No, we are going to do it. Kinder and gentler. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We don't start our born-again life with the nature of Christ. Our, our spirits are new. That's the born again part. Our minds, our attitudes, our character has to be transformed. And the Lord longs for Israelis and Palestinians and men and women throughout the epicenter to be born again and to, be, you know, to become one with him and then change to become more like him. And so let's be praying with greater urgency for this. Now, question two, that brings us to that sort of second element. What exactly does the Lord mean that he wants us to be one with our fellow believers? Okay, now we're in the same family, but exactly what is he asking for? You know, people are like, I'll be perfected in unity, but I'd like to know what that means first. Okay, fair enough. The word unity brings up very different thoughts and emotions in different people. Now, are we supposed to all be holding hands and singing kumbaya together? I mean, is that, is that what he's asking? Is this some pie-in-the-sky idealism or naivete? To, and to be, you know, okay, so that's maybe a, 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 a silly way to say it, but let me say it this way more seriously. Does God expect us to agree on every single matter 
and every single issue theologically, politically, and interpersonally. Are we never supposed to have a disagreement with a fellow believer? Are we supposed to avoid developing strong convictions that could differ with and thus divide us from other believers? Is that what God is asking of us? And there are really two answers. And I know this will sound like I'm from Washington, and I am. But I believe biblically it's true. So there's two answers to that question. And the, answer, the first answer is no, and the second answer is yes. <laughs> like, come on. Okay, well, I got 11 minutes, so I'm going to walk you through it. All right, there's two answers. All right, the, the near-term answer is no. The Lord does not expect believers to agree on every single matter and every single issue uh, here in this uh, you know, before he fully perfects us. He knows full well we're going to have disagreements on many matters, large and small, just as the early believers did. Acts chapter 11, we read that the, the leaders of the early church, uh, church took such sharp issue with the apostle Peter because he'd met with Gentiles and he'd preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And they were, they were smoking mad. What are you doing having, you know, a meal with Gentiles. You know, who are you? It's like, me? Well, I'm, I think I'm the guy that God told to go do that. And they, that was a, a, a disagreement. Uh, they had to handle that together. And they did. In Acts 15, we, we read in Acts 15 that there occurred such a sharp disagreement. That's the, that's the phrase. Such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they, they had to separate from one another. Barnabas took John Mark with him, and they, he sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the grace of the Lord. These two men had such a sharp disagreement about how to do ministry, they couldn't work together anymore. That's right there in the Bible, Acts 15. In Galatians chapter 2, we read that Peter, well, Paul writes, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, Paul said, I had to oppose him to his face. Peter was wrong, and I had to challenge him. That was a disagreement. Now, these are just a few of the examples that are found in Scripture. Actually, the Scripture is filled with tensions and disagreements, and there's a lot in there. And the question isn't whether the church will have disagreements, even serious ones, but how we will handle them. Whether we will handle them in a loving, Christ-like, prayerful manner. So the near-term answer is no. He does not expect us that we're going to get along on every issue and every matter. That said, the long-term answer is yes, absolutely. Jesus prayed that we would be perfected in unity. In eternity, we certainly will be. Do you think that Jesus prays for things that do not come to pass? No, only once, only once, admittedly. He, he said, Father, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way than we could do this save the world thing besides crucifixion? Because I'm, I'm uh, not happy about that. But, but of course, his prayer really was answered in the end because he said, but not my will. It's interesting that Jesus was able to say, I don't want to do this, Father. He said it three times. He said it with such earnest prayer that he was sweating drops of blood. This is how much he did not want to go to the cross in those final hours. But he did not sin because he could say and mean it, but in the end, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That's the only time the Father said no to him, and it wasn't sin. 
God, as I, as I told you before from my, my pastor, he's a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. He's a wonder-working God. And we know that the Father not only heard the Son, but will do what the Son has asked. Because the Son is praying what his Father's will is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul wrote, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's what the Spirit told Paul to write down, and that will one day come to pass. On the face of it, it seems completely impossible, but doesn't God tell us that nothing is impossible with God? And we can rest assured that in due time, God will make us one. Indeed, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Which brings us to question number three. What then does this all mean for the church in the epicenter? If we're honest, we have to admit that there are some serious divisions within the Messianic Jewish body here in the land of Israel. Uh, There are serious divisions amongst Palestinian evangelicals, amongst Arab evangelicals in the region, amongst all of these movements. Some of these divisions are theological and eschatological in nature. And they're not insignificant. Indeed, some of these divisions run deep. Many of these divisions are, and disagreements are political in nature, especially about the ownership of the land and the history of the wars and, and, and the intentions and the injustices committed by Jews against Arabs and Arabs against Jews, particularly over the last century. Still other divisions are personal in nature. This family won't talk to that family. That pastor can't stand that pastor. This sister resents that sister. This brother's jealous of that brother and so forth. Now, I've been coming in and out of this land and this region for three decades, observing both as an outsider and and in the last four years as someone who, who lives here as a citizen. And I'm not saying that these divisions in the church are unique. Uh, they're not, sadly. We have divisions in the church everywhere in the world. But we in this region, we need to ask ourselves this. As Jewish and Arab believers in Jesus Christ, do we really expect God to pour out his Holy Spirit and set into motion the salvation and redemption of millions and millions of people in our region if we as the body of Messiah refuse to humble ourselves and more diligently pursue peace with one another? Is that what we expect from God? Or let me put it a different way. If we as Jewish and Arab believers in in Christ cannot or will not live in John 13 love and John 17 unity with each other, how can we possibly persuade our peoples that we know and have a personal relationship with the Prince of Peace? And that we have the ultimate answer to the problems in this lost world and divided region. How can we persuade them? I submit that we cannot. 
Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's easy to love people on all sides and to walk in John 13 love and John 17 unity. It is not. I'm not saying that I have always done this well. I have not. And I've had to ask for forgiveness from brothers and sisters in this very region, in this very room. I'm not saying that I or the Joshua Fund has, have been without mistakes, that we're perfectly walking in unity. Unfortunately, we have and we, will, and we continue to make mistakes. We don't mean to, but we do. Indeed, I'm not saying that one side or the other necessarily needs to give up deeply held convictions on issues that matter deeply to them. Believers all over the world disagree on many issues, uh, from the role of women in the church to the, to the outpouring and the, and the working out of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the proper interpretation of eschatology. That's just to name a few. Should it really be surprising then that Israeli and Palestinian believers disagree on the theology of the land? Or to how, to how to fairly and compassionately resolve the most contentious geopolitical division in the history of the world? Nor am I saying that we're supposed to pursue peace and unity at all costs, ignoring heresies. No, I'm not saying that. Are we supposed to ignore false prophets, false teachers, uh, false religions, every wind of false doctrine that blows through this region? Is that what we're supposed to do to have peace? No, I am not saying that. The Bible teaches that there are lines that we cannot and will not and must not cross. And now more than ever, we must stand on the biblical truth. What am I saying then? What I'm saying is that we need to pray that God would humble each one of us in this church, in the epicenter. That he, we ask him to purify us, to heal our deepest wounds and help us build bridges of friendship and trust with each other because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm asking you to pray for us as Israeli and Palestinian believers and all the believers in the region that we would tr- learn to treat each other with honor and respect, that we would allow our brothers and sisters to hold different uh, theological or political positions without freaking out, without attacking and demeaning one another, especially in public, as well as gossiping behind their backs. I'm asking you to pray that we would all be more careful with what we say in public and in private, what we post on social media, what we say to the media. Pray with us that we would heed the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as, as is good for edification, for building up, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to all those who hear. Above all, pray that we have a unity of purpose and clarity of calling. That The mission of the church is to preach the gospel, right? To every Jew and to every Gentile, to teach the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, to make disciples, to plant churches, to train pastors, to pray, to worship, to love our neighbors and our enemies. No one else can do this. Not governments, not business, not academia, not the media. No one else is called to do that. No one else can or will. Only the church. Only the church has this calling. And when we are unified... Around this purpose, we will experience great power and we will bear much fruit. So pray 
Pray that, we, that even when we disagree on matters that are deeply important to us, that we care passionately about, that we can still love each other and not let those disagreements distract us from fulfilling the Great Commission. Too often we can act as cheerleaders for our side, theologically or politically, rather than as brothers and sisters in Christ advancing the same kingdom. Yet part of loving others is also hearing their story, slowing down, not just say so much, but to listen, to hear their story, to spend time over a long, lingering meal with with brothers and sisters, asking questions to really understand their passions and their views and their fears and their dreams and their struggles. And then discerning where we might be able to help our fellow brothers and sisters in ways that are tangible to relieve their suffering or provide what's lacking, if the Lord enables us to do that. As a new immigrant to this land, I I ask evangelicals in the West and around the world to get to know and love the Messianic Jewish believers, to understand their unique challenges and to be praying for them and financially supporting them. God is breathing new life into his church here in this Jewish uh, society, and it's exciting. But there are many challenges that we face, and we, on the outside, need to come along with those here, with the body, and help them grow and thrive and stand with them. At the same time, I ask the evangelical church in the West and around the world to come and stand with and love and understand and support the Palestinian church. Treat them as equals, as true brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Pray for them, invest in them, make sure they're not ignored or forgotten or demeaned. Give them opportunities to tell their story and to truly be heard and understood and prayed for. And because, why? Because they're deeply valued by Christ and beloved by the Father. When it comes to Israel and our neighbors, God is not either or. God is both and. Shouldn't you and I be as well? Indeed, when, this is why when Lynn and I founded the Joshua Fund 12 years ago in the summer of 2006... We made it our mission to make the mission statement to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. We and our team are passionate about coming alongside the church in the epicenter to encourage and unite, not to discourage and divide. We, try to, we hope we can stand ready to serve as God enables to serve you as a trusted resource. To, to you and to believers around the world who have a heart to bless Jews and Arabs in this region, who, are, who see that in the scriptures, but need and want help to have the wisdom to know how to do it as wisely and effectively as possible. As I conclude, let me say again that, that my team and I see signs of hope. The divisions I spoke of are real, but we also see a healthy dynamic underway in and between the Messianic believers and the Arab evangelicals. We, we see more and more Jewish and Arab pastors reaching out to one another to break bread, to build friendships, to meet together for prayer. We see some inviting 
each other to each other, preach in each other's pulpits and to speak at each other's conferences. We see Jewish and Arab believers, lay people, studying the word and praying and worshiping together. We're seeing groups of Israeli and Palestinian pastors developing joint documents, develop, emphasizing the importance of working together to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen the recent formation of the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem, a group that I helped found, uh, bringing together a diverse group of theologians and Bible teachers and pastors around a shared set of biblical core principles, including the central importance of fostering unity and reconciliation between Jewish and Iranian believers and others in the region. Now, is this enough? No, it's not. Is it progress? It certainly is. Is it a sign that the Lord is at work to build his church and ready his bride for his return? Absolutely. And for this, we can and should rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and the opportunity to to teach through John 17. I pray that it would be fruitful, uh, that your word would, would touch us each and we would process it. It wouldn't just be one more message, but it would be something that you would speak to us about and how to do it wherever these folks live and that they would pray for us, that we would be unified and in that unity, find deep joy and impact our peoples like never before. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on this episode as we explored the priestly prayer of Jesus. I hope you learned the importance of love and unity in the church and praying for events around us and how they can affect these events and our daily lives. If you've found this podcast really valuable, please get in touch with us. Let us know who you are. Are you searching for Jesus? Do you have a question you want Joel to answer? Go to joshuafund.com and click on Contact Us. Your feedback is incredibly valuable to us as we develop this podcast. And as always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg and the Joshua Fund Ministry Team, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. Jesus wants our fears to launch us toward faith. Then he grins and says, Do you trust me? Because together, we can do this. With Mornings with Jesus, you can start your day in a positive way. Find hope through inspirational stories and scripture. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Mornings with Jesus. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.